Chapter Twenty Four of *The Key to the Riddle*: A Story of Huguenot Days by Margaret S. Comrie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four: The Spirit of the Boisware. This way, Monsieur, if you please. De Quadra, the commandant's voice was barely civil, and he did not trouble himself to warn his visitor to mind his footing on the worn stone steps which they were ascending in semi-darkness, for the light carried by the officer at the garrison scarcely sufficed to illuminate the gloom. In point of fact, Roussier, who had been on the strain since the preceding evening, was more exhausted than in his excitement he was conscious of. Moreover, a feeling of giddiness to which he had been liable of late when over-fatigued had seized him, and the sensation was not altogether a pleasant one to have while ascending a narrow, torturous, dark, and in many places uneven stair. It was only by a tremendous effort of will that he succeeded in conquering the weakness that threatened to undo him. "'Drunk without doubt,' contemptuously muttered the commandant to himself, on hearing the sound of a second heavy stumble on Michel's part. Roussier thought the suggestion a happy one in the circumstances. Accordingly, thereafter, he permitted himself the luxury of stumbling, ad libitum. At length they arrived at the iron-clamped door of the cell, where the prisoner in the velvet mask was confined. Not a single warder had been met on the way. Monsieur de Quadra had taken care of that, and after a low knock the commandant noiselessly drew back one by one the heavy bolts that fastened the outer door. The steep pull had tried Michel so that, what with gaspings for breath and mental agitation, his face had gained a convenient purple hue, while the vindictive grin he endeavored to maintain was so unnatural in its stiffness that it showed the perfection of sardonic malevolence. The cell, a fairly roomy apartment, was not altogether devoid of the necessary comforts. On a small table was a lamp, a book, and a chessboard on which the pieces stood as if the prisoner had left off in the middle of a game. Seated close by was a figure which, in spite of the velvet visor drawn completely over the face, Michel instinctively knew to be Gaston de Rohan. At a word, half apologetic, from the commandant, the prisoner slowly removed his mask, and the one-time rivals confronted each other for a moment in silence. Michel, who continued to stare with diabolical fixedness at his victim, contrived at last to place himself in front of the officer standing on guard at the door, and on the instant, changing his expression, Michel gave de Rohan a friendly signal with his eyes and lips. This signal, carefully practiced beforehand, he made with the perfection of magic. Suspicious of foul play, the commandant somewhat roughly requested him to draw back a pace. Roussier at once complied, his face assuming its former ill-conditioned expression. "'Monsieur Gaston de Rohan,' he hissed out, "'I vowed to be one day revenged on you. I am revenged. To see you now in your humiliation, you, once the proud braggart, now the masked captive, certes, but this is sweet indeed!' He laughed, and the laugh, forced and overdone by his nervous eagerness to make it tell, got beyond his control and rose to a scream so loud that the commandant in a fury seized him by the arm. There was no little risk that even through these massive walls the sound of that maniacal, or as Monsieur de Quadra would have said, drunken, laugh might be heard. But Roussier, wrenching himself free, turned upon him. "'The five minutes are not up, I tell you, and you had my word that I would do him no harm. Just let me make sure the captive's perch is too high for him to try and jump down one of these fine days.' So saying, he strode to the window at the further end of the cell. It was barred, but Michel saw at a glance the bars were rusty with age, it having been thought unnecessary to renew them, owing to the great height of the turret and its sheer descent into the moat below. The prisoner of the velvet mask was the only one confined in that turret, and Monsieur the Commandant, if he had remembered that the moat this season was dry, had not allowed himself to be agitated by the knowledge. The moon had risen, and Michel was able to note the exact position of the window. With a triumphant sneer he turned on his heel. "'Your cage is secure enough to satisfy even me, my fine bird,' he said, nodding at de Rohan, who throughout had kept his eyes fixed on his tormentor. 
an expression on his unmasked face which it would have puzzled anyone to read. "'Time is up,' shortly observed the commandant, replacing in his doublet pocket his huge Geneva watch. "'Sa, sa, mon ami, I am ready,' familiarly responded Michel, turning to follow the officer, who with another muttered apology to his prisoner for the intrusion of this rude fellow laid his hand on the door. Suddenly, as if remembering something he had well-nigh forgotten, Roussier dived into his pouch whence he produced a handful of loose coins. Selecting a large silver crown from the heap, he contemptuously tossed it towards de Rohan. "'Voila!' he said, and sneered again. But for the second time, adroitly turning his back to the officer of the garrison who was fumbling with the heavy bolts of the cumbrous door, he telegraphed another secret message of goodwill, curiously at variance with the marked incivility of his words and manner. "'Monsieur, there was a day, you will remember it, when it pleased you to treat me with the scorn of a lord to the beggar at his feet. Today it is my turn. Remember, Vossen. Was there a reflection in the prisoner's eyes of the significant flash in Michel's? "'Remember, Vossen, he repeated, his glance meaningly directed towards the coin which had rolled under the table. De Rohan coolly replaced his mask, as the door creaked on its hinges, and Monsieur the Commandant unceremoniously pushed Michel out. "'Monsieur Rossier,' said the prisoner, rising to his feet and bowing, "'I shall remember Vossen, and I shall remember you.' "'What is that insolent jargon about Vossen?' demanded the officer in disgust, as he rapidly led the way down the dark stairs, holding his lantern with a carelessness that showed his indifference to the safety of his drunken visitor's neck. Michel chuckled viciously. "'Ma foi! Have you never heard of the prison where the Prince of Condé, just such another swaggering braggadocio as this fellow, was fain to eat his heart out? I did Monsieur de Rohan the honour to hope that he might have as pleasant an experience as the Prince, voilà tout. "'Eh bien,' grumbled the commandant, secretly relieved that the visit he had granted against his better judgment had passed off with no worse results than a fine display of insolence on the part of the visitor. "'You had better come and have a glass of wine to cool your collar.' The invitation was declined, with an ungraciousness fully equal to that with which it had been given, and in another minute Michel found himself in the outer court of the fortress, where a sleepy warder brought out his steed for him to mount. Trotting leisurely towards a copse where a stout nag was tethered, he fastened his own to a neighboring tree. Next he proceeded to a clump of bracken, drew from under it a bundle secreted there, and donned the garments it contained, namely a laborer's slouching hat and cotton blouse. The remaining contents of the bundle, a strong file and a long thick coil of rope, he concealed about his person. Rapidly retracing his steps to the citadel, he cautiously made his way to the back of the building, and with some difficulty clambered down the slimy sides of the fosse, at the bottom of which he crouched out of sight. The next instant there rose upon the still night air the cry of the death owl, and before many seconds had passed, Michel's straining ears caught the faint, irregular click of something tap-tapping the wall above his head. On it came, ever nearer, something light and metallic blown against the masonry by the wind which was rising. A few more seconds and there brushed against his upturned face little Christophe's silver crown, to which was attached the strong silk thread Roussier had secreted inside the make-believe coin. To this thread Michel fastened a cord, to the end of that again the file and rope. The latter he had knotted at intervals to afford some slight support to hands and feet. With the jerking of the thread to intimate that all was ready, there rose again the hoot of the owl. Slowly but steadily the thread, then the cord, and finally the rope were drawn through his guiding hands. When only the knotted end was left, Michel crouched down again in his place of concealment behind a heap of rubbish, and waited breathlessly for the sound of the file at work far overhead. He heard, or fancied he heard it, but the wind had risen higher, and only between the gusts could any noise be distinguished. The time of waiting seemed interminable. Hours were passing, he told himself, and on his forehead the beads of perspiration stood thickly. In reality but one hour had passed when there came a swaying to and fro of the rope, which told him that it was being fastened at the upper end, and presently he caught above the sighing of the wind and the trees 
a faint whistle, accompanied by a sudden jerking of the knot he held, and he knew the moment had come. Slipping his feet, which were encased in strong leather riding boots, through the noose he had made at the end of the rope, he lay down flat on the ground and placed his feet firmly against a low parapet of broken wall overtopping the fosse on its outer side, a device of his own by which the rope would be kept clear of the battlements and the descent made easier. The hoot of the owl, the signal as before that all was ready, was almost instantly followed by a violent jerk that well-nigh lifted Michel from the ground. The strain on the rope was tremendous. His strength was tried to the utmost, and he was thankful when the knots on the rope gave him, no less than the fugitive, a minute's breathing space. This time the seconds passed like hours, until the moment when Roussier heard something drop with a dull thud beside him, and found the tension relaxed with a suddenness that threw him backwards. The same instant he was helped to his feet by a hand that grasped his, and from the touch he knew the fingers were wet. But there was no time to think either of de Rohan's bleeding hands or of his own aching and stiffened feet. Without a word breathed between them, he led the way along the bottom of the moat to the point where they could steal across the open, keeping well under the trees which skirted the road, until they came to the copse where the horses were standing in sleepy contentment. In a flash both men were in the saddle and galloping like riders possessed along the road to the west. On and on they rode, not a word spoken, every nerve on the strain, and within an hour and a half of starting from Pinerolo the panting beasts were pulled up at the outskirts of the Bois Square. Dismounting, the two riders confronted each other in the moonlight. If there had been any lingering taint of the old jealous hatred toward Gaston de Rohan in the breast of Michel Roussier, the look in the face of the man he had saved must have swept it away. Gazing into the clear, honest, kindly eyes of his rival, Michel read the nobleness of the soul behind them, a nobleness he instinctively felt would not shrink from calling even such an one as he, brother. The two clasped hands, neither found it easy just then to speak. But Roussier, who knew there was still much to be done and but little time to spare, was the first to rouse himself to action. Taking the horses aside into a thicket, where beyond sight and sound they could rest and graze, he produced from his saddle-bag what looked like a roll of linen, thrust it under his arm, and led the way into the forest. While they were following the path he was now so familiar with, he rapidly sketched the next part of the programme, giving his companion minute details concerning the part he was to play. Gaston, recognizing that some momentous crisis was at hand, listened attentively, and his spirits, untamed even by nine months' imprisonment, rose in the anticipation of a daring adventure, to such a high pitch that even the uncanny eeriness of the haunted forest at this hour of shadowy gloom had no effect upon him. "'Within the hour, monsieur, you may hear the signal,' said Roussier, when he had arrived at the spot where he was to leave de Rohan and retrace his steps to Malino. In an outhouse near by the farm he met, according to appointment, Monsieur Labitatieu and the Count de Mondovi, both carefully disguised. Cautiously and in silence, the trio made their way to the forest. The two Frenchmen, albeit they had fortified themselves with a good draught of spirits ere leaving the monastery, began in their secret hearts to quail at the task before them. No sooner had the gloomy outline of the Bois Square loomed in front of them, and it was with a touch of irritated admiration that Alphonse de Chu thought of Brother Toma, who had found himself much too ill to form one of the expedition. Before entering the wood, Roussier lit the lantern he carried, then, taking the lead as before, proceeded with slow carefulness toward the densest part of the wood. It was pitch dark, for a cloud had come over the moon, and the tall trees met in an impenetrable screen overhead. All around there was a deathly stillness that seemed only the more awful when broken now and again by the snapping of a dry twig above their heads or under their stealthy footsteps. They had been walking about half an hour when Roussier suddenly halted and turned, so that a fitful gleam from the lantern should fall upon his face, which he had rubbed over with a little flour as he plodded along, murmuring through his teeth that were chattering with an unnatural violence. "'Did you not see something yonder?' he pointed towards a thicket of black darkness right ahead of them. "'Fool!' muttered the abbe, but the frank compliment, no less than the count's smothered oath, 
betrayed a certain accent of wavering uneasiness which Roussier was quick to detect. He took another few steps forward and again stopped short. "'Fool!' snarled the Abbe for the second time. "'What is it?' "'I thought I saw something,' stammered their guide in weak, terrified voice. "'And—' "'And certain, but in this confounded darkness I am uncertain of the paths, although by daylight I know them well.' Suddenly his arm was gripped. "'See here, Craven!' The furious voice was that of Mondovi the Black. "'This showing of the white feather will not do. Another moment and you will be backing out of the wood and the whole concern. Stir but one step to the rearward and you are a dead man,' concluded the Count, giving Michel a momentary vision of the glitter of cold steel. In an utter collapse of terror, the latter flung himself on the ground, clasping the Count's knees. "'Holy Mother of God, Miss, you threatened no deed of violence in this place. It was here, somewhere near this very spot, that the foul murder was committed but thirty years since. They say the tortured spirit of the fratricide that haunts the forest leaves unmolested none save those whose hands are not red with blood. But if one who has the stain of murder on his hands or in his heart enters the bois he and those with him are lost. Hist, what is that?' It was the turn of the Abbe to chew to turn livid with fear. "'Him whose hands are red, him who has murder in his heart.' In the name of all the foul fiends, what had possessed him to enter this accursed wood? He drew the Count aside. "'De Mondovi,' he whispered, but with difficulty, for his lips had stiffened. "'This fool is beside himself with terror. It is of no use trusting to him. Let us turn.' Under his breath, the savage Count swore again. "'Sir, this place is not too much to my liking. That is the naked truth. Let us go back.' Roussier, when commanded to lead the way out of the forest, obeyed with professed alacrity. For a few hundred yards he went steadily. Then, stopping short in front of a tree with a curiously twisted trunk, muttered doubtfully to himself, "'Echo, but did not we pass that old fir five minutes since?' "'Fool, have you lost your bearings again?' And Monsieur Labisse shook the young man roughly. Apparently exasperated, Roussier made a faint show of spirit. "'And I think it were no marvel, monsieur, if I have. What between the fiend spirits of the wood and him who threatens my life in return for having risked my own for him and you, Monsieur Labie, t'would scarce be a miracle were I to lose not my bearings only but my senses,' concluded Michel, wiping the sweat from his forehead. "'The fellow is right, Alphonse,' whispered the Count. "'Pest, but we are not likely to get clear of this ill-omened hole by bullying him out of the little sense that still remains in him.' Handing the lantern towards the Count, Michel murmured, "'I will creep through this tangle of a thicket.' And if, as I believe, the ground opens somewhat on the other side, then I know my way. Do not move from the spot, monsieur. I will return in three minutes. Blind guide of the blind as he appeared to be, Roussier's departure by no means tended to allay the rapidly increasing uneasiness of the pair now left alone together. The two or three minutes of his absence seemed interminable, and a horrible suspicion that some mischance had befallen him, and that they were doomed to stand there forever, began to creep over them both. Silently they looked one another in the face, and moved by the same impulse they took a step forward. At the same instant, roused apparently by their sudden movement, a death-owl not far distant uttered its lugubrious, long-drawn-out screech, which it repeated thrice. The sound, so shrill that it seemed to penetrate into the furthest depths of the forest, reached the watching ears of Azrael in the haunted cavern, and at once, with the can of water standing in readiness, she had dashed out the smoldering fire, dragged the panniers out of sight, tossed the twigs and moss about the floor, and snatching up Christophe, retreated with him in her arms into the inner recesses of the cave there in the darkness to wait and to pray. In the forest the silence and the darkness were profounder still, for in the hearts of the Abbe and his companion there breathed no word of prayer. Each was well aware of the other's terror. Both would have given worlds to flee from the place, but their feet seemed glued to the spot on which they stood. Suddenly a ghostly whisper sounded close at hand. "'This way, monsieur, to the right!' It was Roussier, but the Abbe started as if the voice that spoke had been that of the evil one himself. 
Hurriedly the Count, still carrying the lantern, went forward as Michel had directed, but the next instant, his foot catching in a skillfully twisted bramble trail, he stumbled and fell heavily. Between them the other two dragged him up, stiff and bruised, but otherwise uninjured. "'Perbucco, but the light is going out!' ejaculated Roussier, picking up the lantern he had helped to batter with a well-directed kick. "'But it matters not,' he murmured in a more confident tone. "'I have found the track, and see, the moon is coming forth again, or is it may have the coming of the dawn?' he soliloquized uneasily. "'I have lost count of the time. But—but—mother of God, monsieur, look!' he shrieked, pointing to a glade far behind them. "'May the blessed saints preserve us!' he whispered hoarsely, still pointing with an arm that seemed to have become suddenly paralyzed. "'But this is no moon! It is—it is—' Turning precipitately, his companions gazed in the direction indicated by his outstretched hand, and from out the somber obscurity of a distant avenue their horror-stricken eyes saw a tall, ghostly apparition advancing upon them like a phantom, with outstretched arms. And now, catching sight of its victims, the spectre, uttering blood-curdling yells of demoniacal laughter, advanced with a stealthy swiftness that was something between flying and swimming, the folds of its shadowy wrappings floating like a white mist-shroud over its head. What happened next even Roussier was never able distinctly to remember. Seizing a hand of each of his companions, he partly led, partly dragged them in a dumb stupor of fright on and on through the haunted forest, taking care to follow a path tortuous enough to make the way seem interminable. The dawn was breaking by the time he brought them to the outskirts of the wood. The goal reached, Roussier's powers with convenient abruptness gave way, and with a groan he fell prone, apparently in a swoon. The others, consumed with a burning concern for themselves, decided to leave him to his fate, a proceeding Michel had anticipated. He lay motionless until the sound of their hurrying footsteps had completely died away. Then cautiously raising his head he had the satisfaction of seeing them in the distance like two faint specks flying before the wind. For some little time longer he remained where he had fallen, on the cold, marshy ground on the edge of the forest, strangely loath to move, though why he could hardly have told. In truth, now that the tension of the night was over, Roussier was about to find out that, not in semblance but in reality, he was physically and mentally exhausted. A glance at the breaking sky, however, brought him to his feet at length, with a compunctious recollection of the three who were waiting anxiously for his signal of reassurance. Not without effort, for he was stiff and aching all over, he plunged once more into the depths of the forest and after a quick run he climbed a tree and awoke the sleeping echoes of the boisware with the single hoot of the death-owl. From a point some little distance off it was returned. Descending and following the sound, Michel made for the spot where the dread spirit of the haunted forest had appeared, and before long he descried it hurrying to meet him. A few minutes more and the spectre, with a shout of uproarious laughter, flung its arms about Roussier, wrapping him round and round in the folds of the great sheet in which it was enveloped, and the mirthful voice of Gaston de Rohan demanded, Eh bien, mon ami, but did I not do my part well? Ha <laughs> ha! I scared your banditti off the ground like withered leaves before a hurricane. It was rare sport. But in the name of wonder, who or what are the brigands after here? Hola, monsieur, but how can I speak inside a shroud? asked Michel, struggling with the sheet. No sooner was he free than he advanced a step or two, and ascending a slight rising ground in the open, uttered again the owl's single hoot. This time there was no reply, but apparently satisfied, Michel descended and feeling the need of support, linked his arm in de Rohan's, and led the way in the direction of the torrent-bed. "'Eh bien, monsieur, come and I will show you the prey these brigands were after,' he said, but speaking slowly, for his breath came laboured. "'I've set purpose I did not tell you before. I knew your nerve would be all the better for the game you had to play if you did not know just how much was actually at stake.'" End of chapter 24